0: So we are in a series called Crown and Cross. We're walking our way through um, the gospel of Mark. Mark wrote this book in order to make sure that we had access forever to uh, what the real Jesus said and what the real Jesus did. And we're calling it Crown and Cross because Jesus is both the king who reigns, but he's also the king who is willing to die for his people. In Jesus, we find that love and power Mercy and justice are beautifully held together in Jesus, and in him we'll find the deepest satisfactions and longings um, of our heart, because it's in Jesus that we find redemption. It's in Jesus that we find renewal, and it's in Jesus that we find restoration. And so today, um, Leanna read for us this passage of scripture out of Mark um, chapter 2. In this next episode that we're in, we're going to see how the king is a healer. Today, we're going to look at the king's healing. And so to kind of frame our time, I have a question to begin, on, uh, to begin. Here it goes. If there was one thing that you could change in your life, maybe it's a circumstance, maybe it's a situation, maybe it's just this pressure they feel right now. If there was one thing that you could change right now, what would it be? Like, you know, you had the power that like you could just ask and it would be changed. Would it, for some, it might be a raise. Because you're like, I, right now, the most pending stress that we feel is the pressures that we feel on a daily basis. Maybe for you, it's a romantic relationship. For some, the change you would like to see uh, is, is in the other person. You're like, I, I need them to change. I'm, I'm glad it's here, but I need that person to change. Maybe you think if they would just stop, you ever said this? If they would just stop doing this, then my life would be Okay. Or maybe it's like if you would start doing this, or maybe you're thinking, hey, I'd just be happy if there was someone there at all. Like, I'd, I'd just love someone to be there to fight with, right? Or maybe you're thinking a new job. You're kind of stuck in your career. You feel like it's, it's just this impasse that you can't get through. Uh, you don't have the meaning and the purpose in the day-to-day that, you, that you'd like to have. And so a new job would be the change that you'd like to see in your life. And if the job of your dreams would come, life would go more smoothly and it would be more fulfilling. Maybe for some of you, it's health related. And you're going, look, man, there is this chronic condition, this, uh, maybe it's an illness or something like that, that just makes life unbearable. So what is it for you? What is that most pressing situation or circumstance in your life that if you could change it, you would? And this is very natural. Like no one is is drawing a blank right now. There's probably all kinds of ideas that are going through your head right now. Why? Because it is natural for us as human beings to look around and diagnose our life and go, there are some things that are working, things going. And over here, there are some things that are not working and we've got to bring change. It's just part of being human and living in a world where there's brokenness. And as we saw read to us in Mark chapter two, we're going to see a man who's looking to change a major circumstance in his life. We see that he's paralyzed and he's coming to Jesus for healing. And we can immediately identify if we were paralyzed, we would, that, that would probably be on the top of our list of things like if I could have that changed, my life would take a dramatic turn. So as we look at this passage in chapter two, we'll see um, there, there are going to be two things that we need to learn. The first would be how King Jesus, um, sorry, the things we need to learn about how King Jesus heals, uh, we need to learn these things so that we can experience his healing. The first is this, that the king's healing goes deeper than we think. So if you like to take notes and kind of outline where we're headed, the first thing we're going to look at is that the king's healing goes deeper than we think. And the second thing we're going to look at is how the king's healing is more costly than we expect. So it goes deeper and it's more costly. So let's start looking at the biblical text in chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what God's word says. And he returned to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was at home. And many, look, verse 2, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And what was he doing? He was preaching the word to them. So Jesus, he spent most of his life in ministry in the region of Galilee, which is just north of Jerusalem, and it was in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, that he met his very first disciples. You might remember Peter, kind of a big deal in the Christian story, Christian history. He meets Peter on the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, and in fact, Peter's house becomes their headquarters for their ministry, right? Right? And so if you remember in our episode from last week that the the story ended with the healing of a leper and that word got out that Jesus had healed this leper and the Bible says that it got so crowded that they they couldn't go into towns and cities anymore without the people just crowding in so much that it made the actual ministering to the people difficult. And so Jesus had to go to the desolate places and only those who really wanted to um, hear Jesus and receive from Jesus would go and meet him out in these desolate places. Well, now we pick up in chapter two, some time has passed, and he's able to kind of sneak back in to Capernaum without being noticed. And he goes to Peter's house, and he's there teaching and preaching um, with the disciples. But it's not long before word gets out that Jesus is back in town, and all of a sudden the crowds gather back again um, into his house. Houses back then could fit about 50 or so people in them. And Mark says that they were jammed inside, that they were crowded around the door. And you can imagine like spillover, right? People just kind of coming out into the, to the, the, uh, the front of the house, just being, wanting to be able to hear what's going on. You can almost imagine about 200 or so people gathered in and around the house of Jesus because they just want to hear what's going on. Now, something as we keep in mind as we continue to move through the gospel of Mark, over about 40 times, we're going to hear about the crowds. Like when G, wherever Jesus goes, there's crowds, the crowds, the crowds. And what I want us to start making note as we move is that proximity to Jesus, hear me, proximity to Jesus does not equal relationship with Jesus. Let me say that again. Proximity and excitement about Jesus does not equal relationship and intimacy with Jesus. I mean, that's not even the point of my sermon today. That's just for free. Write that down, take it. Now let's go to verse three. And when they came, uh, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four, moved the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now Mark is a great storyteller. Listen to what's going on. So we're introduced to this paralytic right? And just like the leper last week, we don't know his name. And like I said before, I think that's very intentional because we have a tendency as humans to reduce people down to their dysfunctions instead of seeing their dignity, right? We will reduce people down to their hangups instead of seeing the human that's behind them. Now, his friends this guy, he's, uh, he's paralyzed. He's got these great friends. Um, they catch wind that Jesus is back in, ha- in town. And they've heard these stories that Jesus can bring healing. And so they pick up their buddy. They grab him on a stretcher. We don't even know if this guy a buddy. And they go take him to Jesus. But what happens? There's a problem, right? They're a little bit late to the party. The crowd is already gathered, and they can't get in. I love these guys in this text. These are, these are my kind of guys, They're the kind of guys who see obstacles and turn them into opportunities, right? These are the kind of guys that ask for forgiveness instead of permission. Like, these are my dudes, okay? Most houses back then... These commoner houses would have been one story, and they actually would have these roofs that were flat on top. And they would use these roofs, sometimes if it was hot outside, to sleep out there uh, to, so that weren't crammed up in the humid house. Sometimes they would work up there. And what would happen is there'd be this staircase behind the house. And so these guys just go, great, I know what we're going to do. We're going to go sneak around back, go up the stairs, carry our friend up there, and we're going to just let him through the roof. I mean, imagine the scene. They're starting to tear through beam and branch, thatch and mud. I mean, Jesus is mid sermon. These guys are up top and they start pounding and digging on the roof. Imagine if you're in the room, like you hear the first thump, you hear like debris starts falling and you're like, like, I don't want to be underneath that. I mean, I wonder, did Jesus keep on going? He's like, happens all the time. Everywhere I go, people are busting in, right? I mean, imagine the scene. A hole pops open, and this head pops down to like look below, right? And you're like, "Hey, there's a guy, right?" And then he 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 removes himself, and then all of a sudden, like this pulley uh, system starts coming down, and this guy gets lowered in. Everybody's wondering what's going on. You can feel the desperation of these guys to get their friends to Jesus. They could care less about the awkwardness of the situation. They could care less about receiving the bill for all the property damage, but they're just convinced that if they can just get their friend to Jesus, something good is going to happen. Let's look at verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, I love that. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, a lot going on there. Jesus isn't at all concerned about the manner in which they've just crashed the party, right? He doesn't say, what are you doing? Like, people up what he sees. I mean, Jesus has a way of seeing right to the heart of things, doesn't he? What does it say he saw? Jesus saw their faith. In the clamor and the clash of all that's going on, Jesus sees their faith. Now, how can someone see faith, right? Isn't faith like an intangible It's not like you can give me a jar of faith. See, faith is this internal, deeply rooted trust. But real faith never stays internal. You know what I mean? We act out what we believe. All of our doing, everything we do, is actually flowing from who we are. Doing always comes from your being. And so Jesus saw their intangible faith because of their concrete actions to get this guy To him. And this guy gets lowered down, and Jesus sees the man and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, who saw that coming? Like, there's a plot twist going. Remember, I told you, Mark is a great writer. There's this twist in the plot. Now, what would the average Bostonian say, right? They get lowered down, right? I'm coming, it's obvious, like what I'm here for. Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. The average Bostonian would say, Get out of here, right? That's not why I'm here. Jesus, hello. My problem is I can't walk. My legs don't work. I need you to heal me. Isn't it obvious? Do you think that's what his friends expected? Or even, Jesus, we don't want absolution. That's not what we're here for. We're here for healing. Jesus, can't you see our friend? And Jesus says, Yeah. I do see him, but I can see past his paralysis to his greatest need. See, Jesus is going deeper than we think. Jesus is going deeper than we would expect him to. And how does he do it? The first thing he does is he calls him son. Don't jump past little words in the Bible. They're full of meaning. He looks at him and he says, son, son. This is not merely a term of endearment. I think there's a whole lot more going on because forgiveness in God's economy is not merely a transaction. This is not just saying, hey, you're forgiven, go on and do your thing. In God's economy, forgiveness is relational. When God forgives, he also adopts. Let me say that again. When God forgives, he adopts. And one sentence Son, your sins are forgiven. He's both adopted and pardoned. Who needs to hear that this morning? That being forgiven by God is not some cold transaction, but it's actually an invitation into the Father's love. He's brought near as a beloved, forgiven son of God. And then he says, your sons are forgiven. I want you to know, this is not Jesus merely stating a fact, like, hey, you've got your sins will be forgiven. He's actually enacting forgiveness real time right there, right now. Son, your sins are forgiven. It's happening right now. He is performing a speech act. It's like when a a pastor says uh, to a couple, I now pronounce you husband and wife, like something happens in that moment. Samuel and Denise, you're going to do this, what, in a week, right? Seven days, who's counting? In seven days, someone is going to perform a speech act and say, I now pronounce you. Before that moment, good friends, excited about each other. In that moment, husband and wife. In that moment, Jesus performs a speech act and says, your sins are forgiven right now. And you may be thinking, but what about the paralysis? Like, Jesus, do you see that he's also paralyzed? Paralyzed? But it's not that Jesus doesn't see his paralysis. He certainly does. But Jesus wants to take him deeper than he first thought or even deeper than he knew to ask. You see, we often only see problems on the surface. But Jesus knows that the heart of the problem is the problem of our heart. We often think that our circumstances, the situations that we find ourselves in, are our greatest problems. And we think that if we could just get the circumstances to change, then all would be well. What Jesus is essentially telling this man is, I know you're paralyzed. I don't want to belittle that. But your paralyzation is not your greatest problem. Listen to this quote from Michael Batis. He wrote a book that I highly recommend to you called Disability and the gospel. It's kind of changed the way I see disability and our uh, persons with uh, disabilities. It's fantastic. Michael Batis. But here's what he says. He's speaking about this passage. He says, Jesus' point is clear. All people, those who are outwardly whole and those who are more clearly broken, like this man, have a primary need before God and it is not physical wholeness, as desirable as that may be. The great human need is forgiveness, from sin and reconciliation with God Almighty. You see, what good would it have been for Jesus to heal this man of his paralysis and then let him go and left him in his sin? He would basically be a dead man walking. I mean, yes, would it add quality of life to him? Of course it would, but for how long? What Jesus is saying to this man is, your sickness Your situation, your circumstance is not your deepest problem or even your most immediate problem. And if we take Jesus seriously here this morning, he's saying that your circumstances, the things that were floating around in your head at the beginning, those aren't your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is sin. And I know that's wildly unpopular, not just where we live, but in our country. I know that makes it sound like I just stepped off the Mayflower. I get that. But my job is to tell you the truth. That's what this passage is saying. Now, Jesus doesn't discount your circumstances and your suffering, but he is trying to put them in the right perspective this morning. He's saying it's good that you seek healing. Friends, I want you to pray and ask God to change your circumstances. God wants to enter into those things, but they have to be in the right order of priority. He's saying don't merely focus on the surface we have a tendency as humans to really underestimate the depths of our longings. Here's what I mean by that. We'll use the paralytic as an example. Of course, this man with every fiber of his being wants to be uh, wants to be able to walk and that is right and natural. And Jesus knows that that desire that Jesus knows that having that desire fulfilled will not ultimately bring contentment and satisfaction to his soul. What he's saying is imagine the guy saying, "If I could only walk again." What, what would follow that? Then my life would be okay. I would never be unhappy. I wouldn't be discontent. And, and Jesus is saying, my son, you're mistaken. To walk would be a good thing, even a great thing. But it won't bring the kind of soul anchoring contentment and satisfaction and delight that your soul is made for. Do you remember um, in the, uh, the book and in the movie, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Do you remember the end? Get past like Gene Wilder looking at you right now. He's in that glass elevator at the very end and Wonka kneels down and he says, don't forget, Charlie, what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he wanted? And Charlie Bucket looks at him and says, what happened? And Mr. Wonka said, he lived happily ever after. It's a touching moment in the movie, right? The problem is it's not true. If we get everything that we want most in life, we wake up in the morning and nothing has really changed. Have you ever gotten that thing that you really, really wanted? You'd been working so hard for it and you've got it. And the next morning you wake up and you're like, why don't I feel this euphoria that I, that I thought I would have once I got that thing? Why is it? It's because the roots of our discontentment go deep. Cynthia Heimel she was a, a writer for a, a publication called The Village Voice, big New Yorker, friends. She ran with all the celebrities. Um, I don't believe she's a Christian. And she's got this great uh, a quote where she says this. She's talking about celebrities, right, who kind of, we kind of idolize them in our culture because they've gotten everything that we want. They've got the beauty. They've got the, the money, the, the, the fame, the status. And she says this, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. They were once perfectly pleasant human beings but now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and giggles merrily when you realize that you want to kill yourself. They've worked, they've pushed, and the morning after each one of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that that something that was going to make them everything, that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. What is she saying? She's like, these people have pushed for every dream that America has to offer you, and they got it. And in the morning, guess what? They were still them. And that deep discontentment, that longing in the soul was still aching like I, I, there's nowhere else to go. I've gone to the very top and still my soul is unsatisfied. Look at me. When we diagnose our life, we don't go deep enough. Jesus is saying your discontentment and your discomfort and your despair go deeper than your paralysis. So what is your what is our paralysis? What is that thing that you want removed? Or what is that thing that you want added that you think, if I got this, I would then be satisfied? If this happened, I would finally be content. Everything would be okay. I'd finally feel significant. I'd be safe. I'd be someone. What is that thing for you? One more quote. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, has a children's series called The Chronicles of Narnia. Pretty familiar with it. In the fifth book, this one doesn't get a lot of airplay, so I like to bring up the more obscure. In the voyage of the Don Treader, okay, there's this pre-team named Eustace, and this, this guy is just a brat. There's not another way to say it. Everybody hates him, and he hates everybody, okay? He's selfish. He's mean. No one can stand him, and at one point in the story, um, Eustace, the, the, the Don Treader pulls into this island, and Eustace sneaks off And the boat kind of leaves, right? They're kind of like, oh, Eustace isn't here, let's go, right? And he finds this cave filled with treasure, rubies and gold and sapphire, right? And he's like, I have just scored. And he says, I'm rich, right? And he starts just daydreaming about all the things he's gonna do with his money, how he's gonna use it to take revenge on the people who have hoodwinked him, the people who've been mean to him. He thinks about all the ways he's gonna take that treasure and spend it on his own pleasure, And he's like daydreaming about all this and he falls asleep on top of all his treasure. And he goes to sleep with all these greedy, dragonous kind of dreams. And when he wakes up, kind of looks at himself and he realizes he's actually become a big, horrible, ugly dragon. And there's no going back. This isn't a costume. It's like taken over. It's like skin deep. And as he starts to realize, like, I'm a dragon now. He realizes he can't go back to his old life. He can't get back on the boat because they're not gonna know it's him. They're gonna see this dragon and try to attack him, right? And so he's always, he gets depressed and he's basically given up hope when Aslan the lion shows up. Aslan meets with him and he takes him to this clear pool of water, and he basically tells him, He used to take off the dragon skin and jump into the water. And so He at first thought that wasn't even possible, but he starts to gnaw and and claw at the scales and things start kind of moving off. And he's really able, he's able to pull off the dragon skin. But to his terrible disillusionment, he realizes underneath, he's still a dragon. There's another layer. And so he starts clawing and fighting at it again and gets a second one off and looks underneath and goes, I'm still a dragon. And he tries a third time. He's Out of breath, he sits down and gives up hope. Finally, the lion, Aslan, comes to him and says, I think you're going to have to let me do it. And so here is Eustace's words, kind of just set it up, as he describes what happened to him in that moment. He's now explaining this to the friends back on the boat, and he says this, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made went so deep. I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. And he goes on to say, well, as then he just pulled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times, although before it hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying in the grass, ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And then he threw me in the pool. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. What is Lewis trying to depict for us? He's saying that real healing comes when we let Jesus go deep with his claws, right to our heart, and change us from the inside out. Jesus is ultimately saying, look, I am not going to play that rotten joke on you, where I give you everything that your surface level dreams have ever desired. I'm not just gonna heal your body, I'm going to heal your heart. That's what Jesus is saying to this man. All right, we'll pick up speed. Let's look at verse six. Jesus goes deeper than we might think. The second thing is this, this healing is more costly than we would expect. Look at verse six. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, these scribes who are hearing Jesus teach, they're experts in the law. And you know what? They're actually not wrong. Only God can forgive sins. And so their theology is spot on. Because the only reason God can forgive sins is ultimately because he's the one who's been sinned against. So think about it this way. See Sean there in the back, one of the nicest guys I've ever met in my life. Let's say Sean punches Jeremy over here, okay? Now, Sean would never do that. That's why I picked him. If I said I punched him, he might go, eh, debatable. <laughs> Sean would never do that. So that's why he's good for an example, okay? So let's say Sean punched Jeremy in the face. And then I walk over there and I go, hey, Jeremy, I for, like, I, I, for, I, you know, I go over to Sean, rather. And I say, Sean, I forgive you. Now, what's Jeremy going to think? Uh, hello, like, waiting. Uh, you can't forgive him. <laughs> Like, if anyone can forgive him, it's me. I'm the one who got punched in the face because he was the one who got sinned against. He's the one. Jeremy is able to forgive Sean. Not me. I'm just like a bystander. I watched the whole thing, right? So they rightly understand every sin committed is actually an offense to God. So only God can forgive sins. That's common sense. So when Jesus says, son, I forgive you, they start to question. At best, it's puzzling. At worst, it's blasphemy okay? Blasphemy is not just using Jesus' name or God's name as a cuss word, okay? Blasphemy is when you stand in the place and say, I am God. So they begin to question because they need to go and get that forgiveness. And here's how it worked. You'd have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You'd have to go to the temple and see the priest and give the right prescribed sacrifice. And then, and only then, if you followed the law Perfectly, the priest could say, God forgives you. That's how it worked. It was God who pardoned you. The priests were just the mediators. But they're in Capernaum. They're 80 miles from Jerusalem, 80 miles from the temple. And there's no priest here, there's no sacrifices being offered. And yet, far away from Jerusalem and far away from the temple, without any ancestry in the tribe of Levi making Jesus a legitimate priest. Lacking all sacrificial blood to display to God, Jesus forgave the paralytic sins with just a mere speaking of a word. Only God can say you're forgiven. So do you know what Jesus is claiming? What he's really saying is all your sins have actually been against me. Everything you've ever done was actually against me. Now who is the only person who could possibly say those things. It's God himself. Jesus is making a, either a crazy claim like, I'm God. If I stood up, stood up to you and said, I am God, you go, well, get the, it was a great start to the church, get the white jacket, right? He's either crazy or he's telling the truth. Right? He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the Lord next. So immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take your bed and walk? So Jesus has just claimed to be God. What does he do next? He hears their inner thoughts. Who is the only one This is not Jesus being savvy, right? Some of you in this room are savvy. You can walk into a room and you can kind of read the temperature. You can kind of see what's going on. Some of you are excellent poker players. You can just read the room. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He is hearing their inner thoughts. He knew the questions they were asking in their hearts. Who is the only one who can do that? It's God himself. And so Jesus addresses them and he poses a question. And he says, What's easier, to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? Now, at first glance, it might seem that it's easier just to say the words, your sins are forgiven, right? Because there's nothing to, like, no one can know if it's actually happened or not. It's impossible to prove or disprove. So it's harder to say, take up your bed, like to the paralytic, to actually heal him and let him go and walk. Because if he says to the man, rise up and walk, and he just lays there, what happens? Everybody knows you're a fraud. All this authority and power that you've said you have is found wanting. Now, these guys are still reeling from the fact that Jesus just heard their like, inner questions. Like, I'm sure the question just like went past, and they're like, wait a second, he, you heard that? Did you, did you talk out loud? Did you, who said, like, how did he hear that? But before they can even process the question, Jesus says, but so that you, look at verse 10 that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose and picked up his bed and went out before them all. So all there were amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So Jesus, just to put his money where his mouth is, to prove everything he's been saying is true, he actually heals the man. Like, what I find so amazing is not just that, like, he restores to him his ability to walk. I mean, if you've ever, like, had surgery on your legs or been up, like, you know, after like a week, the atrophy that happens, right? He doesn't just restore feeling to his legs. He restores him completely. This guy who hasn't walked in who knows how long now has the, uh, his body knows how to walk. His body has the strength to walk. All the ligaments, all the muscles, all the bones working in perfect harmony with his brain know how to walk. A miracle has happened. So to prove that he has authority to forgive sins, he heals this man. Access to forgiveness for so long seemed so far off. And in this moment, it's brought near to this man. And all watching this should have walked out going, forgiveness, it's available and it's near. And I think Jesus is the one to give it. It should result in joy and celebration for all who were there. And for many it did. But others, it produced grumbling and dissatisfaction in their heart. What we see here at the end of the story is that Jesus not only cares about his heart and his forgiveness, but he also cares about service healing. And what this man gets is a taste of what's to come for all of us in the kingdom when we will be fully and totally and completely restored. Now, in the wake of this healing, we need to ask, we need to uh, rethink about that question that Jesus asked. Because remember, he said, which is easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? And again, like we said, on the surface, it seems like the answer to the question is, well, of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? We already talked about that. But there's another layer to this. In actuality, it's going to be much harder for Jesus to forgive his sins. It will be very, very costly. In other words, right now, we have this pointing to the cross. As we think about this question again, it's easier to say, yes, yes, Your sins are forgiven. But what does it actually take to forgive sins? You see, at this point in Mark, the shadow of the cross starts to fall on this book. And every passage that we come to is going to grow increasingly more and more dark, increasingly more and more grim, as Jesus starts to explain and show that the Son of Man will have to suffer. That forgiveness that was so easy to say will be much harder to enact. So how does Jesus enact forgiveness? We see a beautiful picture of it here. Remember, before you had to go to the temple to get healing and forgiveness. What happens here? Jesus is the new and better temple. He's not. In the old days, you had to go to the temple. With Jesus, the temple comes near to you. In the old days, you had to have a mediator, you had to have a priest who made sure that you followed everything perfectly. You had to come from this lineage of the tribe of Levi. But Jesus is the new and better priest who comes from a far greater lineage than the tribe of Levi. He is God himself. And in the old system, you had to find a blameless and perfect, spotless lamb to sacrifice. But now Jesus says, I am the new and new and better sacrifice. I offer my pure blood, which is of infinite worth at ultimate cost. Isaiah 53 captures what I'm trying to say really poetically and beautifully. This is what he says. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's every one of us. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord God has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. So how does Jesus enact forgiveness? He stands in our place. He steps in. The punishment that was due us, the stripes that were supposed to be on our backs, he said, I'll take everything single one of them. He paid the price that we should have paid but never could. Don't you see? His healing goes deeper than we know to ask, but at the same time, it's a costly healing. It doesn't cost us anything, but it costs Jesus everything. So how do we apply a text like this? Hopefully God has been stirring in your heart as we've walked through this text and some of those situations and circumstances that were brought to mind before um, as you're thinking about those things and going, how do I balance that? How do I balance these situations and circumstances that I want to change with the fact that I need forgiveness? I hope that you're willing to let Jesus do the deeper work of healing so that our contentment and our meaning and our joy be anchored to something that is not fleeting like our circumstances and our sufferings, that it can be anchored to Jesus himself. This is one of those sermons where I don't wanna give you a list of things to do. We already have that pressure on us already. We're a do culture. You got to do this and do this and do this. I just want this to be one of those texts where it frees you up to be a beloved son or daughter of God himself, where you receive, just like that man received the forgiveness of God, where you would just receive that. Let that start anchoring down into your soul. Let that be the the anchor that weights you down and pushes out the, the, the priority of all those other life circumstances. This is a text about letting God do work on our heart. This is a text where we let him take the dragon skin off. Let him do the work of surgery. So if I could get just one to-do item would be create space in your, time, in your week to do some of that soulful prayer this week where you will ask God, what are the situations and the circumstances in my life that I have given ultimate priority where I put them as the primary place of my thought and prayer life, and let God be the one to start doing the work of healing. For some, you need to, like for some of you, you've received that forgiveness, and this week will be just a good soul care week where we get our priorities back in line. For some, you need to receive forgiveness for the first time. Like this is the first time you've been brought in, maybe by your friends, like the paralytic, and you need to just receive that forgiveness to be adopted and pardoned In one sentence, let me pray.